Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and GEM, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go! Hi, and welcome to episode 18 of Talent Acquisition Trends and Strategy. Today, we are joined by Joshua Encarnacion. Joshua, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you hosting me, James. Yeah, it's really good to, to have you here. And, and we have some, some great topics to discuss today. And, and before we jump into it, it would be really wonderful if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you're up to these days. Yeah, um, serving as a leadership development consultant. It's a great label for just being able to work at in all aspects of the employee life cycle, life cycle, talent life cycle, thinking about recruiting, training, management, and retention holistically, uh, working with companies that are startups, true startups. We're talking about one, two, three million dollars looking to scale. Um, companies that have scaled and are looking to rework some of the habits or some of the processes they've put in place that have got them to where they are, but won't get them to where they're going. Um, and then working with companies that I've happened to, you know, spend some time with in the past throughout my career. I started as a technical recruiter at Google. I built L&D training programs for Uber, and I've worked with a number of different companies in between right, in the Bay Area and Boston and even in Europe. So it's been quite the ride just thinking about people holistically. How do you find them? How do you grow them? How do you keep them? How do you make sure that they uh, don't hate you in the process? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always good, right? Yeah, that's always good. It's a good, it's a good goal to have. Um, so, so I, I know one of the topics that you're you're all, you're very passionate about is is coaching and talent management. Um, obviously, it's it's a big topic, and and we probably could spend the entire episode just talking about that. But um, I wanted to get a sense at 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 a high level how you uh, approach coaching and talent management, and 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 maybe we could just kind of start with the high level strategy, and then kind of boil it down into some tactical, uh, actionable things that companies can be doing to uh, build uh, coaching and, and, and talent management uh, uh, solutions, as well as maybe optimize them, or or maybe, you know, a few things that they usually get wrong, right? This is how companies screw it up. Like all that stuff is valuable. So it's it's really up to you, but we'd love to get your thoughts on, on your philosophy and approach to coaching and talent management. Yeah, I appreciate you setting it up that way. I mean, the reason why I'm passionate about coaching and talent management is because I've been served by a great coach in the past. And, you know, that's a story for another day. But having accepted coaching in my life, um, I've learned that having somebody to serve as a sounding board at any part of in any part of an organization and in any part of your career really allows you to think about getting from where you are, A, to where you want to be, point B. Um, and having somebody that's just willing to listen along the way makes all the difference. So you can continue to manage your own emotions. So you can continue to think about new strategies to deploy when you're up against a challenge. And so you can see challenges as opportunities. And so a lot of what I mean by, you know, labeling coaching as a talent management philosophy as a tool is thinking about how do you embed this in your culture? Because I feel like a lot of times coaching doesn't come up until, you know, somebody's in that remedial state or somebody needs a PIP, right? Performance improvement plan. Or there's also just the, you know, the bias against coaching in general, where it's 
only for people that can't meet the bar, right? Do not exceed expectations. Um, and I'm and I'm sure the world has moved past that conversation in many pockets, especially the ones that we're having conversations in this in the world of HR. But a lot of times, folks are still have have the strong aversion to coaching in any part of the talent life cycle or employee life cycle or HR process, simply because they don't understand it. They don't understand what it is. They don't understand how to approach it. They've never been coached. They've never accept coaching. Um, and so being able to introduce that thought and that idea early on in the life cycle of any HR department is really powerful. I think there's also a certain segment of people, and, and this obviously, this is not everybody, but there are, I think, a fair amount of people out there that think of coaching or it's not, I mean, for instance, it's not therapy, but any kind of like coaching or any type of resource that you're using to help you is almost like this, um, maybe, I don't know if weakness is the right word, but they look at it as like, they have this aversion to it. Like, I don't want to open up or I don't want to share this with other people. Or it, it's kind of, and, and, and it's one of the things that I do sometimes to help people kind of overcome that just on my own team is just talking about like, look, the most successful people in the world have the most advisors, the most coaches. I mean, if you think about you know, let's say you take, take the, the top athletes in the world, they're going to have the most coaches. They're going to have a nutritionist. They're going to have a head coach. They're going to have uh, somebody to do uh, you know, I, I'm not into sports too much, but you get the idea, right? Like they're going to have a ton of people helping them and, and same thing. Like the president of the United States is going to have the most more advisors and more people. So it's, it's, it's almost like people need to understand like, okay, you know, as you're going to continue to move up, you're going to need uh, resources, different people giving you different perspectives and helping you be aware of your blind spots and helping you learn how to communicate, right? Yeah. And as I'm listening to you speak, I'm understanding exactly what you're pointing to. It's a lot of people lack the vulnerability to accept coaching. That's the word. Yeah. yeah and it, it's it's tough to open up, especially when what you've expected through probably through experience, right? Because this immediately brings me to, you know, hurt people, hurt people, right? Is that every time you do get vulnerable, either someone's trying to take advantage of you or someone mistreats you and that sticks with you for a very long time. And yeah, coaching is not therapy, but there's a lot of therapeutic work that's involved in coaching or at least effective coaching. And it is, it is tough. It is tough to want to open up again and receive support, receive help. Um, it's funny. I, I used to run this class for software engineers that were um, on the job search and I would have them rate 30 software engineers, all parts of their career, 20 years, two years, right? I'd ask them, um, you know, if somebody asks you for help, would you help them raise your hand? And all 30 would raise their hand. And I would say, how many of you out of your own initiative today have asked somebody for help? You know, two, three hands. And so a lot of times we're willing to help, but being helped almost feels like it's against ourselves. And so when you think about that at scale, by that, I mean, in a department, in an organization, in a company, um, 50 people, 150 people to 1,500 people, that attitude, it creeps into almost every process that you try to put in place, every standard, every expectation, every recognition, every sense of reward, every incentive. Um, and you end up building, you know, a guild of people that believe accepting help is wrong or asking for help is wrong. And if you can adopt coaching as a talent management style, you'll start to see that what you're doing is shifting people's perspective from a more competitive to a collaborative approach. And if you can get to that synergistic place where one plus one equals three, I mean, 
how how can you see that as a bad thing from productivity standpoint and an engagement standpoint? Yeah, and I think one of the one of the things that I'm most passionate about when it comes to coaching is is um, when it comes to uh, particularly for leaders, particularly for new leaders, right? Like I, I think that if somebody is a new manager, like they shouldn't be able to to become a, a really a, a new full manager without. I mean, people that are having performance conversations, not necessarily team leads, but if someone's moving into a management position where they're ha- they're uh, involved with performance. Uh, then they really need to have an executive coach because to me, one of the most important traits of a successful leader is somebody who can communicate high empathy and high standards at the same time. And yeah. it's just been my life experience that that can be very difficult. Uh, and I could yeah. only speak yeah, to yeah, myself. Yeah. Like It took me a few yeah. years to, to get that down, you know? Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. It took me a long time to finally accept, hey, look, at any given point of the day, I might need a hug or a swift kick in the ass. And both have to happen simultaneously in tandem, in balance. So that way I can keep that disciplined routine that's getting me to where I'm going. But at the same time, I feel supported emotionally. And so I'm, I'm aligned with you. New managers oftentimes struggle with this the most because they're thinking of either A, being popular, which isn't the job of a manager, or B, trying to compete with everyone, which the label for that is so powerful, right? Like the Dunning-Kruger effect. You've been really good at your job. Then you get promoted into management and you want to be even better at your job and just shit on everyone. It's like, that's, <laughs> that's that's not your job anymore. Your job now is to make everyone around you that much better, which requires on one end, right? Higher standards and expectations. And on the other end, support would be it through empathy, any sort of understanding. So I I hear you loud and clear, and it amazes me how many teams just miss the point on how coaching as a style of working is powerful. It's yeah, it's uh, and and I think one of the hard parts with coaching for some organizations is just, just the cost, right? Just, just like, what are your thoughts on that? Because do you, my thoughts are at secure vision. I'm trying to, as we have up and coming leaders that are managing people, make coaching accessible to them, but are you, how do you make coaching accessible to to everybody? Is that really sustainable? Can you really get a great executive coach uh, to to speak with everybody on the team or, or do you do group sessions or, I mean, how do you go about implementing coaching? I mean, is it just like the manager's doing, is it a separate person? How do you really make that scalable to where you can roll it out to an entire department or entire organization? You know, I think, I think when we immediately default to it being for everybody, we're being kind of lazy. Um, Peter Northhouse has this great book, Situational Leadership. And in it, he just talks about being able to quickly, almost immediately, instantaneously identify, you know, what situations call for what solutions. And leadership being the person that uses each situation to help them understand what tool is going to be most effective. And so in my mind, coaching has become this tool. It may not be necessary at every level, definitely not for everyone, but in the situations where the person has a larger than life impact, typically it's your manager, right? But it could be a high performer, right? Like there's there's a lot of teams where the manager plays number two to the person that's, you know, putting up shots, right? Um, in whatever capacity, whether that's, you know, in a recruiting 
capacity, this person is the one that's closing the most recs. If it's in a training capacity, they're leading the most sessions. If it's in a management capacity, they have the most direct reports. Um, but to me, it's finding those key players, getting them the coaching that they need, doubling down on their investment because they're the person that's going to influence and they're the one that's going to act like the trim tab. They're going to be the fulcrum for the entire organization or whatever part of the organization that they've, you know, set their influence into and, and having them advocate for people finding support because it doesn't have to be all the way up to, you know, finding the best executive coach. It can really just be, all right, let's start scheduling more time together as a team and spreading these ideas more organically. I think one place that's often missed really, and I've seen this time and time again, is onboarding. Onboarding is like the biggest place for coaching, like immediately, because it sets the tone. But I I don't know. I've worked on onboarding programs that are three months long. I don't think that's it. Um, and I've worked on onboarding pro- programs that are three hours long. And that's definitely not it. But somewhere in between that three months and three hours, you can find some form of programming that gets people into the right mindset, be it through, you know, spending a lot of time with the business goals or the business origins, the business leaders, or through experiential learning where people are actually understanding like, okay, so this is what coaching as a manager looks like, or being coached as a teammate of, for example, Secure Vision looks like. It it gives you grounding immediately and permission, which I think is even more important to ask for help, which is what we're talking about. And more specifically, help from getting from, from A to B. Right. right. Not, you know, just I, I'm going through a breakup or any like that's that's too much. But I mean, like. I have these goals, I'm struggling. Is it OK to at, reach out to my teammate to the left or to my teammate to the right? right? Is it OK to talk to a manager that may not be my direct manager, but has experience that I want to gain at some point? And I think any C-level executive would appreciate that happening organically. So I think so, I, but I think a lot of C levels mess up when it comes to building a culture where people feel open to asking for help because there's 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 also like you know, subcultures might be so obsessed on the concept of like performance or something that they're they're so critical all the time that people just feel like okay if I if I speak up or if I ask for help that's going to be seen as weakness or I, there's already an expectation that I should know how to do this or I should know how to be successful or. Or uh, I, what will so and so think of me if I ask for for help? I, I think all those, and, I'll, and that's why it's so important. Like culture has kind of become a buzzy term, and everybody's obviously talking about how important it is. But it really is critically important for C level executives to to make sure that they're creating an environment and processes and policies and picking the managers that are going to to help people understand that it's, it's okay to, to speak up and to ask for help and that that's healthy and that's expected. Nobody, you know, we all have different strengths, right. And, and nobody's going to come to the table with the exact same skill set, And, and, and so it's, it's going to be important to collaborate and work together so we can find the answers to the things that people uh, may, may need help with. So I, I think it's the biggest driver of, of, uh, creating that culture really comes down to, to the sea levels, making it happen and putting the right people in management and leadership positions. Yeah. And it's tough because right. Like getting to that level, you're used to an operating rhythm. You're executing it at such a high capacity that thinking about talent management becomes second. Right. Right. Like, I mean, well, I guess I have a question for you. What's how do you rank that priority? Like in terms of 
So yeah, when we think about a C level executive, like where where does people management fall, or where should it fall? Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's um it's very fortunately coming up in a services company. It 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 was very early in my career evident how important having a people first organization um, is. Now I I've worked for services companies that do not put people first and that are basically just burning people out and it's revolving doors. So I've seen the other side of that. Um, but you know, that for my own company. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I came from burn. Yeah. that kind of toxic sales type of stuff. Um, so, so, I mean, I, I know what that's like, but I mean, for me, it just, it just made, I guess some sense intuitively, but it, it was also just an evolution over, over the years like that. Okay. People are going to be the primary driver of value, right? If, if we can take care of our people and, and produce great experiences for them, uh, then they are going to in, in turn produce great experiences for our clients. So let's focus on, on optimizing on their experience. Right. So, so really I, you know, as I'm running my company, I, I look at my job is basically to create great experiences and outcomes for everybody associated with my company. Yep. First and foremost, my employees. That doesn't mean that I always get it right or we don't mess up, right? It's just that we really make it a priority to to create great experiences uh, for them, and that goes into to our talent management. I mean, there's anybody can say they're people first, but the ways that let me just give some examples of how we actually do that. Um, you know, like for instance, we max out capacity um, for our recruiters so that they're only working on a certain amount of roles at a time, and not only not it, it, it ensures that they don't hit like a level of burnout, right? So a lot of agencies will have people working on like 20, 30 roles at a time. 40 recs. Yeah. I yeah something. 40 rec load. I was like, what? Yeah. What the hell? Like that's not even, I mean, for startup and growth stage tech, like that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, our recruiters are on working around six openings at a time, you know, this stuff like that. I mean, we do uh, every federal holiday we're closed. Then uh, attached to every federal holiday, we have another day off. So people get around one four-day work, uh, one uh, four-day weekend a, a month. Um, we have a minimum PTO policy. I mean, we we do things to help people get a good quality of life um, when it comes to capacity, uh, time off. We, you know, we have like the weekly one-on-ones. We listen. I periodically jump on conversations with people because I want to keep a pulse. You can't get everything from a survey. We do surveys, but sometimes you have to do things that aren't scalable. And there's to some extent relationships are not scalable. Yeah, those are the hard things that don't scale. Yeah. Right. You have to get in there and have real conversations with people and figure out what's happening. And it's you can't ever lose sight of that. You know, as a as a as a business owner or a chief executive, you have to realize that you have to keep a pulse on the culture. And you do that not through surveys, not just through feedback from your leadership team. You have to get in there and talk to people and see how they're feeling and doing. I mean, that's that's so refreshing, right? Especially on the other side of this big quit, great resignation. What is it? the turnover tsunami, whatever people are calling it. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> right. It's just, it's refreshing to hear because there, I think the thing that goes out the window first when it comes to talent management, when it's crunch time, I should say, right? Like it's time to scale. It's time to, you know, hit the numbers. It's time to see the revenue um, is trust. It's like, it's like, it's almost like the, first, it's like the first button on everyone's desk is like, let's just lie to everyone. I don't, I don't understand it. It's like, and I mean, I guess it relates back to the first point you made around vulnerability because having, you know, operated in an executive level role myself, right. It, it's, it's like, 
the distance between feeling comfortable and saying, hey, we messed up, or we need to change directions, becomes so much more farther away from you when you are responsible for a lot of people. Right. And I, I'm i sure you see it clearly. And I think that it gets, gets us to that point in talking about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Um, in other executive leaders, when when they have a hard time taking responsibility and saying, hey, I messed up. And, you know, back to, to that executive being the coach or receiving the coaching or providing the coaching, I don't think there's anything more powerful than just saying, hey, we, I messed up. We're changing yeah, direction. I, I screwed up. Yeah, this was my <laughs> mistake. Yep. We're moving on. <laughs> right. And, you know, and if an executive has a good executive coach, hopefully there's, they are not screwing up too much because most of the times the way that leaders screw up is not even necessarily about business decisions. It's, you know, you get off one phone call that, you know, was hell, right? You just, whatever kind of fire, right? And then you get on the next one with your team member and you, you have to learn how to show up as your best self on all those different calls. And, you know, that's, that's something that an executive coach can help you learn how to oh, yeah. compartmentalize, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah. Um, Developing that emotional agility, right? Like, Hey, I'm not dragging this energy all the way through the rest of my day, knowing I have 15 meetings left, right? right. Or, or, or this one meeting is going to have 22 people listening to every word I say, hanging on to everything that I'm thinking about. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, a great executive coach is able to help people process those emotions and those calls and not get hung up. Um, but I think it really, it's, it's coaching as a talent management style or just as, as a talent management framework really comes down to being able to implement a strong sense of psychological safety across an organization, which I think is really what is at the heart of, you know, the best places to work. A lot of people get hung up on the perks and we know the perks come and go. Like if I wanted a slide at work now, I work from home, I can buy a slide into my living room. Um, but like it's, it's, do I feel as if I'm going to get reamed out on this Zoom <laughs> or or do I know I'm going to have a job a week from now, right? Or That's the or, stuff that I, I hate. Like I, in my opinion, like when a company is being run correctly, nobody should be scared of, oh my God, what if I lose my job tomorrow? Like that should not be how performance is being done. That should not be how expectations are being set. It's, it's, it's like, in my ex- opinion, it's, there should be, if there is a performance concern, it's a multi-step process and feedback loop and coaching strategy that goes into that. And, and you know, okay, if I haven't gone through all four of those uh, stages that kind of escalate, if you will, where it's like, you get to the point, like, okay, if we have to, you know, kind of go through this again, then the next time it will be a pip. And of course I'm right here with you and I'll do everything I can. And, and here are some resources, but that's the type of structure that, that, you know, company should have. And in that, in that way you can communicate with the employees. Like, look, if, if we have not had any conversations about performance concerns, you got nothing to worry about. Like this is a safe environment. And I, I don't think enough companies, I think most companies are terrible at that. To be oh, honest. 100%, 100%. And then, and it, it's almost excruciating to be part of the talent team that has to uphold these standards that we all know are unfair. I have, you know, specific experience and now I'm far away from it so I can speak with it, uh, speak about it without, you know, fear of <laughs> backlash, but um, putting in, you know, parental leave policies and, and out and the question being asked, should we just let this person go? Oh, as if, they, as if they were, as if someone got pregnant at the wrong time, 
That's terrible. Is, that's that's horrible. Because then, and you know, on the other side of that, having here, having heard, you know, teammates say, "Hey, look, I'm expecting an X number of weeks. I'm hoping I still have a job when I get back." It, it's stuff like that that you know you have to almost shut your laptop off and ask yourself, "Did you make the right decisions?" When someone asks you what you wanted to be when you grow up, because you're like, "This isn't it, right?" Like yeah. ruining family isn't it i think it's just the detachment that that is often exercised at the leadership level when thinking about people in general that gets dangerous it just becomes dangerous because the moment that your people are just numbers on a spreadsheet you're forgetting the humanity behind what you're building so kudos to you because some of those even just some of the things you mentioned earlier like a minimum pto policy that's powerful that's powerful. That's that's huge in terms of retention in and of itself. A lot of people are still operating under the unlimited PTO. Policies. Oh, I, I can't stand really it. Just, actually, and it really just means you know don't go on vacation. <laughs> well, so it's weird though, because so it's it's I agree with you. I hate unlimited policies because it's so like what the hell does it mean? Like it's obviously not unlimited, right? No. There isn't an unlimited. You can't take six months, right? Probably if, if you have six months and you, you, you know, there's there's other. There's no, other first of all. Like one of my buddies, he puts it a good way. He says, like, look, if you want to take more than a couple months, then are you really in the right position and doing something you're passionate about? Which I get that perspective. But then I'm also like, well, yeah, also from a workload capacity perspective, is there really a need for a full-time person if they're able to take if they're taking six months? I mean, it, and that's one end. But the other end is like, yeah, people have no idea about what's actually reasonable for them to take. And of course, you can, you can, the better co- the companies that do unlimited right, they say most people take around X amount of time. And and that's but, the, the companies that are doing it right, I believe, and I'm, I'm not going to get this 100% correct, right? Even having worked with, what, 20, 25 companies now, even the last couple of years, that's still such a small, small percent of a percent of a percent, right? Um, it's an opportunity to coach right then and there. So if we're getting tactical, right, what we're talking about is if you're going to introduce an unlimited PTO policy, have your managers train people or coach people on how to interact with an unlimited PTO policy. It's it's not take six months off. It's if you know that Fridays and Mondays are stressful, shift your week so that Tuesday through Thursdays is where you're the most productive. And Mondays and Fridays is when you're the most, you know, heads down, able to reflect and and take care of what you need to take care of. Or if you know that you have a family emergency you can anticipate, or even one that you can't, that's when you should exercise communication and say, hey, I'm off these days, but here are the reasons why sharing what you feel comfortable with, but giving people something to hold on to so that they know you're not just abandoning ship. Right. And I, I think those are the missed opportunities. And that's where managers are not coaching. And that's where I see most managers failing. They're they're saying unlimited PTO, do what you want. You're an adult. Well, yeah, I think I think uh, you know, and the reality is that there are a lot of companies that I I don't think are being transparent with unlimited policies. And I do think are actually hoping that people aren't going to take the time. And and that's the type of stuff that really concerns me. And I my advice to to people is like, look, you're your PTO is negotiated in the offer process. It's yeah. not something that, I mean, the forms say request, right? Because like there is like, obviously there's a process and that's okay. But at the end of the day, you're, you're not really asking for permission. This is, this is part of your employment package, right? And, and it's, it's, you wouldn't feel 
you wouldn't feel awkward or guilty about collecting your paycheck. Yeah. Asking for your paycheck. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would be, of course, like we're used to that. So why the hell are we going to feel guilty about asking for taking the PTO? It's like, that's, that's what it, it's, it's there for you negotiate it. It's yours. Right. Um, and, and it's obviously harder in application because sometimes people don't feel supported, but I would always recommend, you know, if you, and, and I guess every, everybody's in different positions and some people probably don't have the luxury of doing this, but if, if you do have the luxury of doing this, push it, you need to push it. You got to take the PTO, see how management and leadership responds. And if you feel like you're in, a, in an environment that is not healthy or is not supportive, and with the caveat, if you have the luxury of doing this, you, you should probably move to an organization with a healthier culture, right? The, the folks at Secure Vision are lucky to have you at the helm for saying push it with management and leadership. <laughs> Oftentimes, folks are not saying that. Um, again, I, I agree with you. I just, and for those companies that are not, that are using information control against their their staff, right? Like <laughs> being ambiguous on purpose to, to get a manipulative uh, edge. It's just like strategic ambiguity at the corporate yeah. level. Thank like you. It's not, it's not a corporate. It's like, what are you doing? That's a, that's that's got to be an HBR cor- course in the next couple of years. Like, right. it, you know, those are the those are the places and those are the decisions where you create the most exclusion. Um, you know, I mentioned to you talking about balance as a means of effective diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. What I mean by that is taking a balanced perspective to all things, right? Starting with what lives at the intersections of identities, sex, race, sexual orientation, gender, political views, socioeconomic class, right? Like taking a balanced perspective is important because that's how you spread that empathy around to understand where people are coming from. But also (laughs) taking that balanced perspective to writing policies and procedures is really where you don't exclude huge populations of people, right? Unlimited PTO sounds very different to someone that's been working for tech companies for 15 years than somebody that's coming out of, you know, a frontline position and transitioning into a tech company, right? Where they're, where for the first time they're working digitally, right? Where for the first time they're, they're, they're prioritizing knowledge work, right? Over their hands. Yeah. You, you lack that balanced perspective and you forget that the entire world is not on Zoom. If anything, we're the select few, right? And I, I think it's it's almost lost on a lot of talent professionals to remember, right? Like this isn't the only arena that we operate in on. And and I don't know, and I guess there's another question for you. I don't know if that's because we are been we've been incentivizing each other to not be as creative as we were when tech was originally booming, right? Yeah. Uh, or if because we're all in that space of scarcity right now due to the recovering from the pandemic, but it's beyond me how we're losing that balanced perspective when it comes to people and almost digitizing each other. So I wonder how you tackle that day to day. It's, it's tough. I mean, I think from a, you want to, from an onboarding perspective, we actually, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, like we're, we're putting in, for instance, like we are putting in to our onboarding more diversity, equity, and inclusion training, um, really uh, to make sure that you know, we have a, 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 a pretty diverse team. It's great. And, and when we, you know, what comes with that is we need to make sure that we have the right, um, I suppose, like process and training, 
uh, and access to information, all that stuff needs to be in place. So people can understand the different perspectives that uh, some of their team members are coming from um, and, and make sure that we can be sensitive to how we are communicating um, in a way that, you know, the information is going to be well-received or interpreted and, and whatnot. Uh, and that's something that, you know, as a small business, it's like, it's a, it's, 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 it's something that we're constantly working on. And I, you know, I've been meeting with my team to, to figure out what they're looking for. Like for us, one of the things we did to, to help uh, because it is a heavy lift is we actually decided to get a PEO. Um, so we actually brought in just works to help bring more structure to our onboarding and our HR and to help provide us with some of the trainings that we need so we can kind of eliminate some of those, those gaps and make sure that we're actually providing a truly inclusive environment. Um, so, so I, I'm not going to say, you know, we certainly don't have it all figured out, but what we are doing is we are, we are actively listening to employee feedback. And yeah. I think that that's like the, the hardest, like the thing that companies need to be very careful of is like, when your team gives you feedback, you better act on it because if you don't, they're going to stop bringing it to you. And so, so that's one thing that it's like, you know, when it comes to onboarding and experience, particularly as it's tied to DE&I and, and everything else when it comes to inclusivity is we are very, um, we are very, at least we try to be very good about listening to the, the feedback and figuring out, okay, let's make sure we get a roadmap in place so that people continue to feel open in terms of talking about this because they know that we're listening and that we care. Which creates a balanced perspective. You know, it's, it, it's the reason why I hang on that term. It's because it's not who's right and who's wrong or, or who's, you know, and it gets even to a painful place. Like who's more diverse and who isn't. <laughs> how, does that, how does that work? Um, I'm not quite sure, but I do know that people see things a multitude of ways and listening helps paint the full picture versus staying to that one biased perspective. So I appreciate you saying that. And I'm hoping that as we move beyond, you know, the pains of the pen, the pandemic, right, and the outpour of what it's done to small businesses, which, again, I appreciate you being able to rally a team around moving through this digital space. Um, but I, I'm even thinking about like across the street, there was a vendor that used to do like on the on the corner, like just food truck. Don't see them anymore, right? And like yeah. keeping that in perspective, right? It, it's like, how do we reintroduce some of these more balanced processes, procedures, right? Um, as we start thinking about reopening, as we start thinking about in-person again, because I, I feel digital is going to be forever, right? Like now that we yeah. got comfortable with Zoom, we're going to be Zooming for a really long time, you know, and shout out to Zoom. Maybe it might be another platform, but in-person is not going to go anywhere, at least in my opinion. <laughs> so how do we, how do we learn these lessons? Right. Cause I feel like the, the beauty in digital was that we figured out we can work in a new way, but the pain in digital was the silos. A lot of people only had what meetings they had on their calendar for two years. Right. You lose that connectivity. Right. And you, you lose the kind of the, some of the, uh, bonding. I don't know if bonding is the right word, but just, just where you really, you can lose some empathy along the way because you're not as close to, to the team. And so it's very important to, particularly for leaders to kind of, I guess, keep that top of mind. Right. Is that, is that, is that kind of how your, where your head goes with it? I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking. It's sometimes it's, yeah. I mean, and then like the, the uninvited exposure, right. Like you think about like 
days where you could the commute, right? I, and I'm praying that not everyone was just in a car, you know, with road rage, but like for some of the folks that were walking or taking the train or whatever it may be, you meet people along the way. Like, I think we've forgotten that, right? Like you have all these different touch points and they're real um, and they continue to shape your perspective. They continue to give you a creative outlook on things. And so, I mean, yeah, I'm with you. The bonding, it's, it's almost like just the sharing of energy, which makes conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion easier, right? Because like, don't want to have to resort to the bar, right? Like, but yeah, like getting a drink with someone you don't know, right? Like after work, you're like, wait, we're here, we're drunk, and now we're friends. Uh, how'd that happen? <laughs> how'd that happen? Yeah. What? So what are your thoughts on Elon Musk's approach where he's basically just saying, okay, you got to, you know, you got to come back to the office or get out. What What are your thoughts on that from like a talent management perspective? And I'm just kind of curious for you to break that down. Yeah. You know, there's so many, so many ways to label that approach, but I'm with every opportunity to do this type of work, I get closer and closer to just fear mongering, right? Like, and I mean, no doubt in my mind that he is going to act on those words in some way, shape or form, right? Whether to be to send a message or to truly cut out a portion of the business that he felt was ineffective anyways, right? Um, but because there's, we don't have proximity to what Elon is thinking, it's so hard to judge and label what he's doing. I agree right? with you. We can we can piece it we can piece it together. Obviously, like we can pay attention to the signals if we don't get lost in the noise and and see what he what he's doing. But fear mongering, you know, it is what it is. And I in to your point earlier, that's when you start to advise people to find an organization that's more aligned with the leadership style they care about, right? That they want to support and promote, and they want to receive and be open to. Um, cause I don't think a decision like that being made, um, so sternly promotes or supports a balanced perspective, right? right. It's, it's a luxury to, for folks to be able to just step into the office at a moment's notice, um, back to what we talked about with teammates that are expecting, right? Families that are expecting, right? As, as you and I would experience, and I'm assuming here, but, being fathers, if we were in that situation, how hard would it be to just say, oh, now I'm now I'm in the office again, X hours a week. And so you, you're reaching beyond, you know, a company culture and stepping into people's personal lives because you're just shattering boundaries that people are trying to build up for themselves as they move through this pandemic, which is what we're exiting, or I hope that we're exiting. And you're saying, this is what I needed. This is what I want right now. It, it, you know, it's a breach of the contract that you sign for an at-will employment, like you mentioned with unlimited PTO, right? But if somebody's going to move that way, I, I guess it's the only way you can really vote in this situation is through, you know, withholding employment and trying to figure out where else to invest it. Um, I saw a post earlier today that said something like, you know, an employee's greatest asset or their biggest power is their voice. And then somebody followed up with, no, it's not. It's where they decide to work. <laughs> that was like, that makes sense. And I think that's accurate, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
So, I mean, it's a great question. I, I don't have a very clear answer. I'm not trying to skirt away from the question. I think fear-mongering is not something I support in general. I label it that way because it's, it is what it is. And we've seen it in different arenas, right? We've seen it in, in many different faces and capacities. And I, I don't think it's going to go away because some people believe that's the way to lead. I just think it's on us to support what we care about and continue to minimize the voices that and decision makers that are not aligned with who we are. Right. And, and one of the things that I actually find, I don't know why, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be frustrated about it, but one of the things that I've always found frustrating is that companies can be very successful and not put people first. Yeah. They can be non-inclusive and be very successful. They can lead by fear and, and be successful. They can be right. incredibly abrasive and even uh, verbally abusive. And, and, and still have a successful company. And so it really does come down to understanding your values and understanding the values of uh, the company. More importantly, the values of the leader you're working for, right? Yes, I mean, yes. you really, like, I think sometimes people put too much of an emphasis on the company or the brand versus like, who's the human, right? That I'm going to be reporting into. And do we share similar values and approaches to life? Of course you want diversity and you want, I'm not saying, but there has to be like that underlying, like there's some core, you know, values and ways that we want to live our life that are aligned. Right. I mean, I think that that's really important. And it, as you said, it's not necessarily your voice. It's where you decide to work sometimes. Yeah. Principles, right. Even beyond the values, having aligning on some core principles, right. Like collaboration, right? like mm-hmm. um, the empathy, one that came up often in our conversation, um, yeah, it's aligning on core principles. I, I mean, back to being able to implement like coaching as a talent management strategy. Do you promote open communication in this organization as a leader or do you promote closed communication? And I think, you know, as more and more, as more and more of the world wakes up to not just the power, but the mal effects of social media, right? Because there's right now I have a platform, but also I'm being influenced without my permission. Um, we'll we'll start to personalize companies under the light of their leadership. And I think that's a process that's been happening for a lot longer than both of us have been alive. But I'm excited to see it continue to happen because I I think that's probably the only way that we're really going to start to see a shift to this more humanistic approach to work, which a lot of people have championed and we can name names, but it's, it's good to know that I'm in community with somebody that cares this much to say those things so publicly. Yeah, for sure. And and this is, uh, by the way, Joshua, this has been a, a ton of fun. And I feel like I could probably continue to just riff on these topics with you for, for quite a long time, but we are, we're coming up on, on time here. And before we jump off, I, I did want to just ask, you know, if people want to follow you online, like how, how can they find you? How can they reach out? Yeah, the best way to get in touch, joshuaenc.com slash connect. Um, people will find a video there where I try to speak to the services I provide and I have a quick form on how we'd work together. Uh, So whoever is interested in working together, be it thinking about recruiting, learning and development, executive coaching, performance management, reach out. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for joining us today. This was a lot of fun.
Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.